Today's passage comes from Psalm 51, and it's printed in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this time where we can hear words of life from you, words of truth. And thank you that we can do this in community, not just alone, so that we can lean upon each other for wisdom, wisdom to know how to apply these words, apply your gospel community for support and encouragement to help us to believe these things, especially your deep, unchanging love for us, which is mainly what we want to hear from you today about, your love, your life-transforming grace, which we have through Jesus. So give us ears to hear, please, Lord, for your own sake and for ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're finishing up our series today, which we've been calling Excusable Sins, Defensible Sins, just looking at different ways in which we engage in moral failures, moral flaws, uh, but ones that we maybe uh, typically forget or neglect or overlook or defend ourselves against, and just a way for us to explore growing as sinful people that are more and more becoming what God desires us 
to become. Each week we've talked about these different areas, but one thing we never did do, at least explicitly, was talk about, well, what is sin anyway? What is sin anyway? We never defined it, but rather we were kind of looking at different case studies and examples, learning about the nature of sin. And I think if we piece it all together, whether if you were here with us the past five weeks, or if you want to go back and listen to the sermon audios online, I think this is what we've kind of learned about the nature of sin. That when we talked about grumbling, We learned that sin isn't just about breaking rules. No, sin is at its heart ingratitude, thanklessness. At its heart, sin is refusing to acknowledge God and His blessings, believing that I can actually do a better job at God's job than He can. Step aside, I don't need you. When we were looking at self-righteousness, We saw that sin isn't just doing wrong things, but sin is also thinking the right things that you do are enough to make you acceptable before God. When we looked at the fear of man and materialism, we were reminded in such poignant ways from the Bible that sin isn't just loving bad things. Sin also is loving Good things, good things like people and material possessions, but loving them so much that we start to treat them as substitutes for God. We actually start to worship them as God, what the Bible calls idolatry. And when we looked at resentment, we just saw the dynamics and the way in which sin is refusing to treat other people as God has treated you and me. There's so many dimensions to the idea of sin, and I don't know if we lost you on that idea right from the start without really defining it in detail, and I know I still I'm not. I'm just giving you different examples and shades and angles on this idea. But the question today as we wrap this up, rather than looking at a sixth pattern of sin, is what do we do with it now? Okay, so I'm convinced that my life is full of sin. I'm guilty as charged in all these different ways and more. We could have gone on and on and on, couldn't we have? But what now do we do? And the answer is what we see all throughout this psalm, Psalm 51, this plea to God to wash me, to cleanse me, to blot out or cleanse out my iniquities, to renew me, to give me a new heart. What this psalm is talking about is the idea of repentance. Repentance. Literally, that word, which isn't found in this passage, but it is found all throughout the Bible, it's an idea that means to turn, to turn away from sin and to turn back to God. To turn, to change my mind about God, about myself, about sin itself. It's sort of like inhaling and exhaling. Two sides of the same coin. Where repentance is just getting out the gunk, the carbon dioxide, the stuff that if it sits in you, it'll kill you. But the flip side of it is also inhaling the grace of God. 
the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God. To survive Christianly, you need to do both. Inhale and exhale. And some of us only inhale. Others of us only exhale. And you wonder why spiritually you're suffocating. Drinking in the grace of God, but also repenting of our sin. Now, I don't know what that word does to you. Repentance. Do you like it? Probably not. I wonder what kinds of associations come to your mind when you hear about that. Maybe it's this idea that you're just supposed to feel really, really bad about yourself. Come to God groveling. Maybe it frightens you and intimidates you because the only time you see or hear about that word is when you pass by a metro station and there's some guy with a big old sign calling you to repent. Maybe it's a brooding feeling that comes upon you as if somebody just socked you in the gut and that's what I'm telling you that you're supposed to do or the Bible tells you you're supposed to do. Well, oftentimes, what we think is repentance is not repentance at all, not as the Bible defines it, but something closer to what you might call penance. Penance, which is an entirely different thing. Just making yourself feel bad about yourself or attempting to pay God back for the bad things that you've done. Paying Him back with maybe better deeds, self-atonement, Or maybe paying him back just by suffering. If it really, really hurts, then maybe he'll let me off the hook. If I really let myself feel really bad about myself, then maybe, just maybe, God will show me mercy. And so therefore, I can't come back to God until I've just suffered for long enough, motivated by guilt, motivated by self-centered regret, sometimes motivated by self-loathing, need to clean myself up and totally driven by fear and guilt. And friends, the Bible knows nothing about that sort of penance. Rather, the call is to repentance. David shows us the difference here in this psalm. It's a song, a poem, a prayer written by David. And if you were to flip through the book of Psalms and you came to Psalm 51 in a Bible, you would have found a little introductory line right before verse 1, and it would have said this, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You may or may not know the story. It comes from the Bible in the Old Testament, Psalm 11, I mean, 1 Samuel 11 and 1 Samuel 12. David, God's greatest king, who was called a man after God's own heart, doesn't get much better than that. Just made a wreck of himself. Sure, he was always a sinner in many ways, but one day screwed up really badly, not only committing adultery with another woman, but even killing her husband for a cover-up. It's in the midst of this tragic occasion that David comes to God and writes these words, asking God for his mercy, for his forgiveness, and then he passes it out to the entire nation of Israel that it might be a corporate, community-wide prayer of repentance. Not penance, but gospel repentance. And David shows us the difference. What's the difference. 
Four quick things. We'll look at these and then we'll talk about it. Number one, true repentance is honest. True repentance is honest and transparent. You see this all throughout the passage. David talking in a brutally honest way about the depths of his sin, his iniquity, his transgressions. He is a transgressor. He is a sinner. We see these words again and again. He's not pulling any punches. In the beginning of verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. Later on in the psalm, he refers to blood guilt, most likely talking about the way in which he deserves death because of the murder that he himself uh, committed against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. There's this honest invitation to really be raw and real before God as you receive his mercy. To just lay it out the way it really is. And to name your actual sins in order that you might receive actual forgiveness and mercy. Real repentance, true repentance is honest. But can I clarify what I mean by that? Because honesty is so hip these days. It can be confusing Just this idea of being honest can be misleading. Because did you know that you can be honest and yet be utterly hopeless and miserable? If all your being is real about how messed up I am and you just leave it there as if honesty is a virtue in and of itself, which is the way that our culture treats it today, as if honesty is an end goal in and of itself, all you're left with is your nasty you. (laughs) And that's why so many people think that repentance leads to depression or despair or hopelessness. And it does for a lot of people that practice it this sort of way. You kind of see this in the way that a lot of Christian small groups actually operate. When you're kind of doing a Bible study, if you've been in one of these, people are talking about different areas of flaws and sins and failures, and everyone says, yeah, I do that. Yeah, I'm like that too. Okay, let's pray. And you're done! And that's it! And it's honesty that really leads you to simple hopelessness and misery. Or did you know that you can be honest and totally personally detached from the thing that you're being honest about. You know, you can feel like, okay, I am a sinner. Okay, I'm flawed in that sort of way. And you might even analyze your sin. Some of us are really good at this. I can tell you all the layers of what I do and the motives of of my heart. And I'm very introspective, so I'm very good at telling you about why I'm so bad. And I can take it apart and give it to you. And it's not the same thing as the repentance that David is exemplifying here. Because what that is is simply an honesty that's personally detached. Or did you know you can be honest and arrogant at the same time? You know, when we say, look, this is just the way I am. Take it or leave it. Or look, okay, I know I'm flawed. That's honesty. But hey, I'm not going to change. And you're going to have to just deal with me. Right? Or the way in which we make excuses for our behavior or our bad character or our stubbornness of heart. You can be honest and arrogant as well. David is talking about a totally different kind of honesty. First of all, it's an eager and a hungry honesty. An honesty that says, yeah, this is really who I am, but I'm so hungry for your mercy, God. 
I'm so hungry to change. I don't want to be this way anymore. And my only hope is the grace and the forgiveness of God. He grieves and has sorrow over his sin. He's not personally detached. Verse 1, have mercy on me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Rescue me. Restore me. And do this according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Not according to my sincerity. Not according to my goodness or my worthiness or how hard I've worked to earn your compassion. No, David's entire hope is in God. He's hungry for God. True repentance is also true honesty. I mean, is also joyful honesty. It's not just honesty that leads you to despair. Friends, it's not true repentance unless it sings. David says in verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 14, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. And you say, well, that sounds great, but how is it a joyful thing to talk about all the crud in your life? Well, look at verse 7. David is so confident that when he asks God to be kind to him through Jesus, God will do it. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I, what? Will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. It's a joyful honesty because it's a confident honesty, confident in the grace of God. And lastly, it's a humble honesty, not an arrogant honesty that says, look, this is just how I am, stubborn-hearted and all. It's a humble honesty. Verse 4, the second half Have mercy on me so that you be proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. What's David saying there? God, you got it right. I come to you defenseless. I come to you with no excuses. I come to you not just sorry that I got caught. We're not just sorry that, well, I'm having a bad day, God, so you understand why I'm like this. We're not just sorry, well, you know, it wasn't all that bad. But God, it was that bad. And please give me kindness, even though I know I don't deserve it. True repentance sounds like that. No excuses. Are you like me, friends? So often, my repentance has so much explanation tied to it. Maybe not out loud, but in my heart. You know, where we always feel misunderstood. Or maybe you always feel like it's never really your fault. Or maybe we're always so quick to blame other people. Therefore, undercutting our repentance There are real people in my life that I'm deeply concerned about and praying over because as I look at them, professing Christians, I have yet to ever see a sign of genuine repentance in their lives. Always an excuse, always someone to blame, always an explanation, or always a sense of being misunderstood, but never this sense of looking God in the face and saying, you're right, period. You're right. I need your mercy. Have you experienced this kind of honesty, friends? 
Do you long for this kind of honesty, an eager honesty, a humble honesty, a joyful honesty? This is what God invites you to. But true repentance is not only honest, it's also loving. It's, it's loving. You see, penance, false repentance, is always really self-centered. It's all about me. Okay, yeah, so I screwed up, and so I'm starting to realize it. But really what I'm after is I just want that icky feeling inside of me to go away. It's just all about me. It's self-pity. It's just regretting the consequences of what I've done and really not caring about who I've injured or offended. And you don't really ever feel badly until it disrupts your life or makes you start feeling bad about your day. There's a real difference, friends, between feeling sorry for myself and feeling sorry for God. There's a real difference between being sorry for sin that we commit against our loving and holy God and a sorrow that simply longs to be comforted. And this is what I mean by true repentance being loving because you're actually thinking about another person. Look at how David does it in verse 4. Against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. My primary concern is what I've done to God. You see, the idea of sin and repentance is not just simply that I've crossed a line in the moral law of God, but I've crossed the heart of God. I've broken a relationship, not just a rule. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga puts it so well when he says this, sin is not only the breaking of law, but also the smearing of relationship, the grieving of one's divine parent and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a holy bond. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. True repentance treats our sins in that sort of way. It's not just a a transaction or just a legal exchange. It's coming to God and say, God, I have slapped you in the face. I have hated you. I have disregarded you. I have violated you, my God. It's not just about me and how I feel And how I can get out of trouble. Just like with good, healthy relationships we have with other people, so also in our relationship with God. Thirdly, true repentance is a lifestyle and not a lifeboat. Not only is it honest, not only is it loving, but true repentance is a lifestyle. Penance is served up as a lifeboat. What I mean by that is, what's a lifeboat? Well, it might save your life, but you rarely use it. You hope you never have to, and you keep it out of the view of polite company. But the Bible talks about repentance in a totally different way. It's a lifestyle. It's actually not even just a single moment or a one-time event. Repentance is to be a characteristic of our entire lives. Because first and foremost, it's an attitude of the heart. In verse 3, 
David says, I know my transgressions and my sin, I see, is always before me. See, David has learned to actually notice every part of himself as being flawed in some fashion. That he actually sees all the numerous ways and layers in which he rebels against God and hates on people and selfishly conducts himself in community and relationships and work and every part of life for you and me. And he says, look, when I look at myself in the mirror, I see my sin ever before me. In verse 5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In other words, I don't just do bad things. I have a bad me on the inside of me, a flawed nature. This sin is a very part of who I am. And David knows this because even though we talked about how his great flaw that inspired this psalm, this prayer, this repentance was adultery, the Bible is very clear that his problem was much more than adultery itself. First of all, it started, the Bible tells us, with his pride, his sense of entitlement as a king. He started treating himself as an entitled emperor, looking at all his people as subjects that existed for his beck and call. He owned everything in his kingdom, even the wife of those who served him. One of his most loyal men, Uriah, your wife is mine. All your stuff is my stuff. Not only the adultery itself, but also the deception, the cover-up. Not only the cover-up, but the injustice of his abuse of power. The way that he finagled things just to make sure that Bathsheba's husband would be put on the front lines of battle so that he'd be killed. David guilty of murder. You see, this wasn't just one bad day. And David knew it. The problem wasn't a bad day. It was a bad heart. And a need for a new heart. This is why David doesn't say, as we so often do say, I promise I'll never do it again. David knows better. It's not that we don't have a sincere desire to change or not sin in the future, but you don't make these empty promises because you know it's coming again. (laughs) That's how bad it is. That's how deep it runs. That's how flawed I really am. Not, I promise I'll never do it again, not just give me one more chance, but you start to talk like the Apostle Paul when he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. What does it mean to live true repentance as a lifestyle and not just a single occasion and certainly not as a lifeboat? It's to start to see yourself as the chief of sinners, the worst of all sinners, and therefore the greatest of all recipients of the mercy of God. You start to say, look, I know the thoughts in my head. My sin is ever before me. I know the desires in my heart. I know it better than I know your sin. I know what you don't see. I know what goes on in here. And I'm talking personally right now. I know it. As far as I can see, I am the worst in this room. I mean it. I need the mercy of God more than all of you. And the Apostle Paul is teaching us how to say that to ourselves. Again, I'm the chief of sinners, but grace upon grace has taught me to say, therefore, 
I'm the chief of all rejoicers. Because as deep as the pit of my sin runs, so great does the wealth and the riches of God's mercy that flows into that pit and covers my iniquity, my transgressions. And when we start to see life in this way, it actually starts to become freeing. Jack Miller, who was the, the, the mentor I never knew, so much of his, of his writing and his teaching, a, a pastor who lived, passed away not too long ago, but used to have this saying that was just so helpful, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but this is what he would say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Okay, cheer up, you're worse than you think. What does he mean? Friends, so much of the time, we just cling to this idea that I just made a little bit of a mistake. I just deviated a little bit from what I really am, which is essentially a great person. And when I have that in my mind, I'll just do better next time. And I wasn't that bad. And then what is it? I'm believing that next time it's still on me to do better. Next time I can do better. Next time, I should do better. Next time, I need to clean up my act better. And you're just miserable because you know nothing of the free grace of God and your whole life is centered around self-atonement and self-cleansing and self-purification. If you start to understand you're worse than you think, there's actually joy that rises up because I'm giving up on my little project of self-reformation. I'm giving up on my project of perfecting myself by my own power, by my own effort, saving myself. I'm giving up on that because God has given it to me by His grace. Cheer up. You're worse than you think. And you can start to even have a sense of humor in the right sense about your sin. But you don't take yourself so seriously all the time. Where when someone actually says, I mean, this is the defensiveness thing, right? Somebody says to you and points out to you, look, you kind of screwed up there. You can actually say, you have no idea. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You have no idea. And you stop defending yourself as much. Because you know, if they really knew the truth, you'd have no defense whatsoever. Cheer up, family. You're worse than you think. There's a real joy that comes from finally giving up on yourself and finally finding all of your hope on Jesus. It's a real joy that comes from that. I used to think that love meant never having to say you're sorry. That is a great Hallmark card, but terrible Christianity. And bad relationships too, right? As if the whole goal in life is just to never have to say sorry. And a lot of people, especially if you've grown up in the church, maybe you live this way. You live your whole Christian life to avoid sin just so that you can avoid repentance. And so you start faking it and lying about it and deceiving not only other people, but yourself. Look, love doesn't mean never having to say you're sorry. Love is saying sorry when you need to say sorry. And if you're any sinner like me, it's a joy to be able to do it a lot and to be restored in relationship with God and with other people, to do it habitually, to do it as a lifestyle. As a lifestyle. Lastly, true repentance draws you near to others. 
You know what happens with penance? When you're just motivated by fear and guilt, when you're motivated by just having to cleanse yourself and do it yourself, really there's a shame that overcomes us where we start to distance ourselves from other people, right? When there's no honesty and no humility, where there's no joy in being restored to God, no real sense of truly being forgiven, no true beginning, when you feel filthy and you know you are, well, you start to hide from people and you start to step away from people. But true repentance actually does the opposite. It draws you into people's lives. It makes you want to be with them. It makes you engage in relationship. Draws you near to other people. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. David's saying, when I've actually truly repented and experienced your mercy, I want to share my experience with other people. I want to tell people about the mercy of God. Whether if it's neighbors that don't know this mercy or people that do and just need to hear it again. My testimony, my story. Do you share stories of God's kindness to you, to others? Do you start to open up your life and to freely and boldly say, I'm a sinner, but a sinner saved by grace? Do you start to embolden yourself to do that? Verse 15 as well. Open my lips. Open my lips and I will declare your praise. And as we do that more and more personally, sharing ourselves with people, and as we start to gather together as a community, what we find is that we start to become a little bit more of an authentic, attractive, truly repentant community. David says, I'll teach transgressors your ways. And what? Sinners will turn back to you. Sinners will start to come back to you. How many people avoid the church and communities of faith because the unstated and sometimes all too stated message is that you need to clean yourself up before you come on in? Because sinners, in fact, are not welcome here. It's the righteous. How often is that the message of the church? David tells us of a different kind of community, an authentic community, an attractive community, a place where people not only repent honestly, joyfully, humbly, boldly, but also free others to repent and freely admit their sin where you draw people out of the darkness and into the light. Verse 19, Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, God. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He's talking about a community where people freely talk about their sin and their need for forgiveness. A place where it's okay to be broken. Friends, here in this church, if we're to be a place like David is talking about, a community like this, you got to know, or do you know, here, it's okay to be broken. There's mercy for you and for me in a repentant community. This is what the church is supposed to be, a gathering of flawed, sinful people who start to see the church as an oasis in the desert. A place where you can finally get a drink of life-giving water. Jesus Himself. 
What would our church become like if we learned more true repentance? What would our neighborhood be like if God gave us all grace throughout this local community to learn the grace of true repentance? How would conversations and interactions on the street be different? How would businesses possibly be run different? How would neighborly relations be different? How would conflicts be resolved differently? How would tensions actually be released and lives restored differently? Friends, Good Friday is a day in which we remember the death of Jesus, His cross, and the reasons why He had to die. Repentance is the process in which we are engaging deep in our souls that very reason. Jesus, the true David, the son of David, who himself didn't just cry out for sacrifice, became a sacrifice himself, who said, I will humble myself, give myself to you as payment for your sins, as true mercy, something you can bank your life on, something that will give you a true new beginning, something that give you, gives you joy unspeakable. Are you hungry for this? Have you ever tasted this kind of repentance? Maybe today can be the first day you do. Or maybe in a way that you've never had before. Let's pray that God would do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we do look to you. You're our hope. You're our hope. For this kind of humility, this kind of, this kind of repentance, this kind of true spirit, we long for you. We look to you. And we ask that you would show us now how to respond. Work in our hearts, work in our community, work in our neighborhood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.